Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? I'm Maya Matarik from the University of Southern California. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I would like to go back when you were a child. Do you, do you have any memory that makes you interested in science or yeah, any imagination when you were a kid? Do you remember anything about that? Oh, I remember a lot about being a kid. I was a kid in the old Yugoslavia, which no longer exists, unfortunately. Uh, and it was a very different time. Um, my father was an engineer, and I don't think that I actually thought about it explicitly, but I inherited a lot of his engineering thinking. Mm. My mother, on the other hand, was a poet um, and a translator and a linguist. And so they were very different and compatible. And uh, I think his engineering spirit influenced me more than I knew. But I think what really influenced me, because he died when I was pretty young, um, was my mother's tenacity. She just stuck with everything she did. She was, you know, she was a single mom and a new immigrant and battled a lot of things. And I think sort of the the curiosity about everything, but not giving up, the bullheadedness, um, I think I got that from her. And that's really useful in research because you have to really just kind of not give up when when you have no idea if what you're doing is actually... The, the right thing to be doing or the way you're doing it is the right thing. So that's been very helpful. That's impressive, yeah. So I would like to go back. What is the first robot to build, if you remember? And we all know that you are one of the pioneers for social assistive robotics. So what is the first robot to build and what the feeling you had, um, if you remember about this? Robot? Uh, so I have not, I was not, as someone who knew that she wanted to do engineering all along. I did not tinker with robots as a child. I did not tinker with Legos. I wanted to be an artist and a psychologist. Um, And it turns out that's really important because the kind of robotics I do now uh, really is only successful uh, if we understand people. Because in order to create machines for people, we must first understand people. So my two interests have come together. Uh, But I didn't really work on robotics until I was in graduate school. I got interested in robotics when I was an undergraduate at the University of Kansas, but the University of Kansas back then did not have a robotics program. And so all I did was uh, read some books. And I really wasn't all that interested in the kinds of things that I read because it was the kind of robotics that I never ended up doing. It was manipulator robotics, which is not my area. Um, And so it was when I got to graduate school for my master's as a first step, because I went to MIT and there was a master's before the PhD. So for my master's dissertation, um, I built a robot and I didn't know anything about electrical engineering. I didn't know anything about mechanical engineering. I was a computer scientist. I'd only ever programmed. And so I had to learn a lot in that year and a half. And it was, a, it was just so amazingly hard, but amazingly rewarding because in the end, I had built this robot that my friends named Toto because I came from Kansas and uh, Toto is a, you know, from the story of, uh, you know, Wizard of Oz, anyway, long story, but I had, I had built this robot and it took forever and I was, it was really hard and I thought I would never get it done. And then it ran and it ran perfectly one night and did the right thing. And um, we actually, this was again, back in the old days when we didn't have cameras in the ceilings to record the robot's behavior. 
So I had put a marker um, on the bottom of the robot, one of these whiteboard markers. And so when it drove around the floor, it left lines on the floor and the, there was floor tiles that were a foot by foot. So you know, it's like having a grid, except the grid was the actual floor and the markings were an actual marker that was taped to the back of the robot. And we just let it run for hours. And then we looked at it and, and we asked the cleaning staff to not clean the floor. And it was just this greatest feeling because when my advisor came in and he looked at it and he said, wow, look at these lines. They're really, you know, the robot was like following the walls and he was going to the right place and doing the right thing. That was enormously satisfying. And the thing that was enormously satisfying about it was that I had created something that worked in the physical world right here with the rest of us. It wasn't just on the screen. It wasn't just in the computer. It was right there next to me and next to everyone else. And that was, that was tremendously satisfying. And that was why I'm in robotics. Oh, that's wonderful. So after that, I, I would like to go to the point where you recognize it that oh, I'm just in robots that can help people. How this come to you since you're a pioneer? How this moment for you as a young lady, just to get interested, or is there any difficulties you faced to prove yourself in the field back then? Oh, goodness. I've, I, we all continue to have to prove ourselves constantly, mm -hmm. but certainly for women in a field that, where, where women are underrepresented, uh, it was hard. And then certainly for an immigrant, it was hard. So it's always hard. Mm -hmm. But um, it's, it's hard to do things that are worthwhile. So one has to keep uh, pushing. But indeed, when I started in robotics, I was working on a sort of more traditional problems like navigation. And then for my PhD, I actually, I had a very non-traditional, very open-minded advisor, Rodney Brooks. And um, I was interested in teams of robots, which was a crazy thing that no one did back then. But he was very supportive and because he liked wild and crazy and different things. So he actually supported us in getting 20 little robots. And, you know, like I couldn't even get half of them to work at any one point in time. It's such a huge engineering problem. And uh, this was a while ago, but I did have those resources to do it. And so I, I, you know, I worked on navigation and then robot teams, not necessarily classical problems, but not problems that had to do in any way with interaction with people. And it was only 15 years ago or so that I actually got interested in robots helping people first, because I had a graduate student, a woman student, who was interested in working with uh, not just teams of robots, but teams of robots and people. Um, and so that, you know, I, initially when she first said that, I thought, well, it's hard enough to work with teams of robots. Why do we need people? But once we started looking at interacting with people, all of my interest in psychology came flooding back. And that's when I really wanted to discover an area where robots could help people in a non-trivial way. So not just, you know, fetch me a beer or et cetera, but really helping people who, who needed physical or cognitive or social or emotional support. And that's how we ended up creating this new field because we looked for a niche. We looked for something that didn't exist and yet that it could really make a difference. Um, and that's how the field of socially assistive robotics came about. And I can certainly say that creating a new field is a very you know risky prospect because I didn't know that people would think that this is a great idea. I had to go out there and sell the idea. I had to give up all my research funding that I had um, gotten very successfully for the work that I had been doing up until then in order to do this new thing. And I had to convince people that this new thing was a worthwhile thing. Mm. 
But because we designed the, because, and when I say we, I mean, it was me and my graduate students. Um, we we chose this field based on need, real human need, whether we're talking about children with autism or stroke patients who are recovering and trying to move their body and be productive again and not depressed, or whether we're talking about Alzheimer's patients these days, whether we're talking about anxiety, isolation, depression, these are incredibly compelling areas. And so I think the reason that the field is a success is because of the need. So it's not just some fun thing to do. Oh, wow. I wonder what happens. Can we do this? No, it comes from the perspective that there are numerous people out there who need help. And this is a form of automation that isn't taking work away from people. It's in fact, giving them the ability back to do their own work, to help themselves. And that's very compelling right now. I think that's very interesting. You said many interesting points. I would like to stop in the point that first you study psychology. I think that's give you perspective what people really need from technology. I think that's something maybe missing a little bit in our technology development. And the first question is, do you think that when we have funding grant, the project could be technology-driven or product-driven. Because sometimes we have nice project, but there's no real application. Maybe in, in the long term, we can figure out something. But I, I think this is something serious, how we, we can develop technology that may be useful to community at the end of the day. I think that is an excellent question. And I really wish people would ask that question of themselves early and often. So I am, of course, as, as a scientist and as a researcher and as an engineer, I'm a firm believer in doing basic research and exploring things for the sake of gaining new knowledge and, and knowing what we can do. But I think it's really important to do things that make the world a better place and solve problems that we need to solve right now. And the world has so many problems that need to be solved right now that I think there are times in history when we need to focus a little bit more on that. And so we call that sometimes use-inspired research. I also think it's important because you often see traditionally underrepresented researchers really be attracted by such problems. Let's talk about women, for example. Uh, historically, it was very difficult to get women involved in engineering with the exception of biomedical engineering. Why is that? Well, because in biomedical engineering, uh, women researchers could see that, you know, that you this is where you can make a difference, right? Oh, I could go help someone who's lost a leg or, you know, and so on. Um, sometimes that it's hard to convey that impact on the real world for some other areas in engineering. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's changing now. For example, in computing, you know, historically we had trouble getting women into computing. Now we have trouble getting women into computing because there's so many non-women getting into computing, but at least now everybody wants to get into computing. Mm -hmm. It's a strange and good problem to have, I suppose. Uh, but we have other areas of engineering that have not, at least during the engineering education process, have not been good at communicating the real world impact. I mean, you know, I don't know, let's take electrical engineering, currently not a popular enough topic. When you say electrical engineering, what does that mean? People think, Oh, I don't know what that means. Is that like circuits? What's that for? Whereas if you say computing, now everybody thinks, you know, Google, Apple, Amazon. They didn't used to. Ten years ago, people were like, computing, what's that? Ah. And then computer games came along, and now it's big tech. But we need those compelling real-world areas for other fields of engineering. And then also, I don't think just because there are companies out there, that, that, that means necessarily that they're doing meaningful things, right? I mean, yeah. you know, I, I actually think that there are way too many apps in the world 
and all these brilliant minds need to work on computing for really important things related to, you know, COVID-19 and Satan and more fair markets and equity and inclusion and yeah. so many other things we could be working on, you know? So I think, again, it's, it boils down to who the people are who are doing this work. Yeah. It's, at some level, it's the leadership, right? Because people have to do the job that they're given, but it also has to do with our values, right? So even I, I tell even young people, um, they have a choice. They don't have to just take a job just because, oh, well, it's a, it's a well-paying job. Think about what you're actually doing. What's your impact? Um, yeah. I can't agree more. I think there is a lot of point, interesting point also I would like to highlight. First thing, when you take the choice that, oh, I have to work in that and it's breaking you and other woman and you have to take a risk in an academic world, I think that's something nowadays we still struggle with when you have a new ideas and... We see in some debates, for example, simulation to reality, for example, there are grouped against new ideas that may be undermine their whole history of research. And it's like a gatekeeping as well. That's something we have already. And maybe it's a human nature. You wanted to keep what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So, and that's something we witness. So how, how you overcome that? Uh, do you think it is about having a network, a support network or or institution, because sometimes uh, well, it is hard. Oh, it is hard a lot of the time. And and you're exactly right. I couldn't agree more. I think any system uh, is designed to perpetuate itself. Mm-hmm. And that means the people in the system are only familiar with people who are like them, right? And that, exactly. you know, that results in all kinds of things, right? And we're wired for implicit bias mm-hmm. and people only recognize success in those who are like themselves. And so all of these forces conspire Um, And taking risks makes people nervous, right? So in research, as much as we're supposed to be coming up with new and original ideas, often, yes, you shouldn't be coming up with new and original ideas, but those ideas need to kind of look like these other ideas that we're familiar with that get published in these three places, which are approved as the best places to publish. And I think that's very, it's very limiting. And so, first of all, it's easier for people who are more senior to be truly innovative um, certainly in my case, I, I formed a new field, but I only did it after tenure. I couldn't do it before tenure because before tenure, everybody said, oh, don't write a book. You need to focus on this and this and this, right? And so I got a lot of advice about being more conventional in order to more easily get tenure, mm-hmm. which was still important to me because I was a woman and I didn't want to be yet another woman that you know gets pushed out of the system. Okay, so you, you have to kind of play along enough to, to get your foot in the door. But then as soon as your foot's in the door, you have to stop playing along. And I think that's the problem. Some people forget they get so absorbed in the system that they continue to play the game. Um, And so, you know, as an example, I'm always the person who says things like, no, we're not going to have a meeting at eight in the morning because we, we need to take care of our kids. And then a lot of the people in the group, often men will say, Oh my gosh, thank you for saying that. I need to take care of my kid, but I didn't feel comfortable saying it. So you have discrimination working in all directions. Surprisingly, it's not just, it's affecting everybody, but people are not willing to speak because they are in some sense seen as being part of the in-group. So how do you deal with that? Yes, you're right. You need a support structure. But I also think that what really helps is finding compelling um, reasons why we push for the things we push. So again, I know I'm not trying to make it simpler than it is, but in, for example, starting a new field, 
the, the thing that I found to be comp- particularly compelling is you find the people who benefit from it and you let them speak for it, mm-hmm. right? So you know, if you want to develop, let's say, a robot for, for children with autism, it doesn't really work for me to trumpet how wonderful it will be. You instead talk to children and families who have had some experience with this and they can come back and say, oh, hey, this really you know, changed my life in a positive way because they're the true advocates. They're the, the true experts. And I think... I think that's lost in, in, in technology in general and in research as well, which is that people get so separate from the real world. They work in their lab, they work in their, you know, with their headset on. They're not thinking of the people for whom they're actually creating. Yeah. Um, and that's unfortunate. That That's why we get a lot of failed products. And that's why we get a lot of people who could have a real purposeful mission, but instead they're just kind of, they're kind of like on a little treadmill, just going along without really grounding in the real world. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's very beautiful. I, I would like to stop here as well because you said something when you accept any job and you don't know what could be the impact. I think in all in all the way you mean about to find a purpose, why you're doing what you're doing. And that's very interesting. And you said something, we are isolated. And to be honest, uh, I can relate to that sometimes when you stay in, in the lab long hours and disconnected f- from the real world. So if I ask you, there's many, many points you highlighted. For example, as well, you can't take a risk unless you're uh, maybe tenured. And, and that's something make the younger researchers sometimes they don't have the freedom to express different ideas. And that's something also we have. So if I ask you the question is how we can fix this issue? Do you think that academia in general have to be changed in different way in terms of funding or maybe policy as well how you think this can be changed this game changed yeah that's a really good question and in fact it, it, i'm frustrated with my own recommendation of kind of waiting a little bit because i hate waiting myself and it was yeah. very hard for me to wait but you you don't want to get like you, you have to get far enough along in order to really change the system i do think things are changing though because again as we get more diversity in the system mm-hmm. for example you know uh you know at, at my own year university, we just now are at 50% women students in engineering. That's a major achievement. That just means, and I don't want to talk only about women, but it's one obvious thing. You know, like if the world is half women, why don't we have half women in everything? Mm -hmm. But we don't. Well, why don't we? There's really no good reason for it. Everything is, every reason against it is something cultural and biased, right? And yet it's such an ongoing struggle. But as we change that in specific niches, a lot of things change because people talk differently, behave differently, they see success in others, they, they suddenly, you know, suddenly now when you're surrounded by others, more like yourself, then you don't have to wait, right, to be yourself. And I think that's the trade off, right, when there's a tiny minority, we wait a bit longer, but then we still break out. But when you're not in a tiny minority, you keep fueling it and getting it bigger, and then you can act more and sooner. Uh, But you have to act and you have to act all along. Um, and I do think there are many different personal styles, right? So some people are much more, so some people are very good at being politically smooth and they get support to do what they want to do. And I see great wisdom in that, but it is not a wisdom I have, or it's not a wisdom I accept. It's just not how I am. I'm not very patient and I'm very blunt. And uh, that, for example, is not a strategy that works uh, if you're in the minority and you're young, but when you're senior, and have earned your stripes, then you were allowed to be more blunt. Yeah. But you know, as a woman, I mean, even now, 
I, I'm told things like, oh, you should be less blunt. And I always turn around and say, have you ever said that to a guy? Because if you take any sentence and you swip, switch to gender or the ethnicity, whatever, and if it doesn't sound right, then you know it's wrong. Yeah, I agree. But it happens, it happens all the time. And then the other thing I would recommend is when these things happen, sometimes people, sometimes people are just kind of chugging along in their comfort zone and they don't even mean to be as um, as negative and discriminatory as they're being. And sometimes it's good to draw their attention to it, but in a way that doesn't punish them. Because if you punish them, then they just go the other way. They just dislike you as the source of the message and don't want to hear the message. So sometimes I'll use humor when people say something totally inappropriate instead of just taking it or saying, well, that's terribly inappropriate. Mm-hmm. I might use some you know humorous thing. I remember distinctly many years ago, somebody told me, I was getting a lot of grants and I had just had a, a child. And so they said, oh, we should just keep you barefoot and pregnant. And so I said, wow, that is so great. I love that. I should sue you for saying that. What do you think? Um, but I was joking, yeah. but I wasn't joking. And you could bet that they, you know, we laughed it off. But I don't think that ever that person ever made that kind of a joke. Certainly not with me and probably not with anyone else. Because, right, it was like diffusing the situation while trying to get them to understand that this is not a thing to do. And because people are people, just kind of hitting them over the head with their wrongness doesn't unfortunately work. And that's hard for me because I want to just tell them. Mm. But it's not always the, the most straightforward way. And learning that lesson can take a while. I can't agree more. You learn the hard way. I agree with you. So since uh, you're really an advocate for helping people from underrepresented, um, especially from different backgrounds, ethnicity. And I would like to ask you the question, first question is, because I think you really, I, I think your role, are you stressing an education for kids and also mentoring. And this is really key point. I, I think it's not only about research, but you're focusing also in the key point. The first question is, how we can move from diversity to inclusion? Because sometimes, to be honest, inclusion sounds a little bit just a sketchy title in an institution. I, I'm not making a swimming generalization, but how we can make sure this word inclusion, inclusion and make everyone hear it, and also intellectually as well, in terms of ideas. How we can move from being diverse to be inclusive, because we have diversity, but we are not inclusive yet. Yes, you're absolutely right. And this is very hard. And you're asking me very hard questions, but they're good questions. So, um, I can only say a couple of things. One thing that, that I tend to do is, you know, we're talking about academia here and research, and that should be based on data. And so I often will use data to support some of these points. So instead of saying, oh, we want to have diversity, I might use some points such as, hey, you know, all of the top schools have this property, right? Which is always, you know, everybody wants to be better. So then that's more compelling. Or I'll say things like, well, you know, um, companies that have women in leadership roles have been shown to make more money. So that just seems like a good thing if you want to make money, mm-hmm. right? So, so because the data are so clear on why diversity and inclusion is important, I will sometimes use those data to, to make it a very pragmatic point rather than making it a philosophical point. Because there's some people who will not really understand just how important it is because, you know, they're not, let's just say that they don't, they're in a very represented group. But if you, if you give them an argument that actually benefits them, then they'll buy right in. Right. So it's, it's, you know, it's the typical strategy of uh, make it seem like their idea and their success. 
And that's a good thing, right? So I just, I mean, I'll give you a concrete example. I was talking to a group recently that dealt with the commercialization. And there are very few women in the in the world of, you know, venture capital and, and funding, et cetera. And so we were looking at a certain advisory group and, and they were all male. And uh, they, and basically, just we just said, oh, well, why don't we just do early screening anonymously? And I said, you know, there are all, there are all these studies that show that if you do screening anonymously initially, you end up with a much more diverse group at the end, and they're equally qualified. And I said, oh, here are some studies. It's very hard for people to argue against that. I mean, you cannot argue against data in a research setting. In the real world, people constantly argue against data and use fake news. But, you know, in an academic setting, you, you can't. Unless you show me a study that debunks the other study, you can't ignore it. And so I tend to use that and, uh, and just get very, very concrete. That's the other bit. So one bit is using actual data. The other bit is being very concrete. Um, I think you're exactly right. People talk a lot, but they don't necessarily do because they, they're almost lost by the scale of the problem, right? They look at the problem and they think, oh my God, this is just so pervasive. What can I do? What can I do? Who am I? And so I was just saying this to some of my students because they were, we were talking, we talk all the time about, so how can we do better than what we do? We do pretty well, but what can we do better? And one of my students said this. She said, well, I'm just an undergraduate student. I can't change how the university does this and that. I said, well, no, give me one concrete idea. And she had a lot of concrete ideas. And one concrete idea was, uh, you know, if you have volunteer students doing research, often it's the students who have more money that, ha- that can be volunteers because mm-hmm. the students who have less resources have to work and they don't have the time to do volunteer research. So, you know, why don't you use work study, which is a, a program usually for doing work, but you could use it for research. And it was such a simple thing. And so I just went and looked into it and it turns out it's perfectly allowed. It just is never publicized. So now we publicized it. We put it, we put it on four websites. That's it. And you know, this is going to change people's lives and hopefully people's futures. And it was an idea that she had. And I just came back and just, I emailed everybody and I just said, look, here's an example. You can make a lot of difference, but think of very concrete things and paths to make a difference rather than thinking about really big philosophical things at the societal level. It's really hard, right? It's kind of like think globally, act locally, but yes, act locally. I, I always ask people to give me very specific things. Like what can I do on this website? What can I do in this particular, you know, like this particular process, this particular, anything really operationalizable because first it's concrete. So you actually do something. Second, when you do this, you can feel really good that you have made a change. And that's important because these challenges are so big. I think people get demoralized and isolated and and, uh, they give up and they get sad and depressed. And and we don't want that. We want to harness that wonderful energy by making little baby steps. Um, And baby steps are so important. They're important uh, in recovery. They're important in convalescence. They're important in overcoming challenges. And and that's true at all, every scale, whether it's your personal challenge or whether it's societal challenge. Baby steps, never stopping. I can't agree more with that. Yeah. So I would like to go again to your expertise in the field. What are the most misconceptions you have witnessed in your career about robotics? And something maybe concerning to you or misconceptions? Yeah, I would say that probably, and this is going to be controversial, but I would say that one of the biggest misconceptions in my field and in many, many fields is just how important math is. It is so tiresome to have this one model of what um, 
what value and novelty is. So I see way too many people publishing papers that are basically just pretty math for the sake of pretty math. Um, and it's really rewarded. It's incredibly rewarded in the field. And so what you see is the same people getting lots of publications and accolades for doing things that never go into the real world ever. Oh, but they're pretty. And I, I just, you know, I find that frustrating because I don't think we shouldn't do any of it, but I think we should value equally people who do things in the actual real world, people who do stuff with human subjects, people who go out there and create real devices that work and make a difference. Mm -hmm. uh, but, oh, but those are practical. They're not formal. Exactly. And so I think the, the, the problem with the academic structure is that it almost actively discourages uh, things that, that have an impact because they're too messy. And to have an impact, you have to get messy. And there's this assumption that, oh, well, but that's business and innovation. We don't want that to be research. Well, you have to have both. If you just wait for, for the market and the venture capital to do anything in the real world, then you get a very skewed set of things. Like it's a world of apps and not a world of rehab devices. So, so we just need more uh, willingness to accept messy science. It's very tiring how obsessed we are with formality. That would be, I think, a big misconception. I think, um, yeah. yeah. I think this is really a serious point. I would like to thank you for bringing this point because I think, yeah, that's maybe this comes again to publish or perish culture as well in academia. And second thing is, if we if we apply what you do, because I I know you you co-founded embodied robotics, and that's something if we apply in academic world, I think we will match this gap between what we have in academia and industry. But I would like to ask you again, why why we still have this uh, issue? Is it like a system, due to system of maybe the funding or institution? Why we reward this research that doesn't up, end up in the end of the day to real impact? Why we still reward this kind of work? Who is responsible for that? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. I think it does have pretty straightforward answers, which doesn't mean that it can be changed easily. But yes, the answers are exactly as you said, which is we have established journals, right? So in academia, right? What what is the what is a measure of success? The measure of success is your H index, your publications, um, what and what your peers say about you. And so that, you know, what peers say about you and publications are all very narrow in terms of what they recognize as success. And so that has to change. But how do you change that? Um, it's, I mean, there's so much conservatism. I remember actually in one, in field, okay, I won't say exactly which field, but there's a conference, which is a, you know, kind of like an elite conference, but they're so close-minded that they literally have like two or three categories for papers and then an alt category, like alternative, everything else. And when they first put it out there, people said, oh, this is great. It's going to be more inclusive. And I said, this is, this is horrible. I think it's horrible. It's like saying, well, there are three things that are legitimate and everything else is like, quote, alternative. Mm. I mean, that, that's, I, I think it's, again, an example of people trying to be inclusive, but doing exactly the opposite. Labeling. It's like labeling other. It's like saying, we're the in crowd. You all are other, but we'll give you a little tent on the outside. Wow. I said, that's, that's terrible, right? You should instead have a, you know, you could just relabel it, but you could say it, you know, great new ideas, best innovative research, new directions. Don't call it alt. What mm -hmm. is alt? I mean, but this is, there's, this is pervasive in the field because people are so uncomfortable with, 
with things that are different and new. And so, again, I think it'll change because I think it's changing very slowly, but it is changing as you get more young people in the field, as you get funding. These days, what we see, at least in the U.S., we see a pressure towards commercializing the research that has its advantages and disadvantages. It can have disadvantages in the sense that it can, you know, force things to not be principled and done properly, but it does have its advantages in which at least for some kinds of work, you really have to care about the real world. You can't just only publish. There's real, there's real pressure against just publishing for the sake of publishing. And then, you know, there's this whole um, archive, the new, the new wave to just put stuff on archive and grow one's uh, H index through archive. And that's that that's putting real pressure on journals to yeah. be different and interesting. And I think it's good. I think pressure on any established system is a good thing. For too long, we've had journals that have been established that publish only the kinds of things they think are the right things to publish. Um, now they're threatened. And let's see if they can innovate in some good way. I see some journals trying to do some really interesting, innovative things. And that's a welcome change. Yeah. So if I ask you, that's very interesting. To ask you what be consequences, since, to be honest, there's a pressure you have to publish. And that's something most of the guests highlighted, that there's a pressure you have to publish. And it's like very fast science. You have to do very fast stuff. And to be honest, sometimes you, you need to understand deep understanding of the problem and and the pressure of the peers. So what be consequences if we didn't like take action in one year or two years to just to, to discuss, to have an honest discussion in a community that, oh, we have to add this. What be consequences from your expertise if we didn't solve this issue? What would be consequences, do you think? Well, so, yeah, you're right. We do have, uh, especially in the tenure process, you kind of have these six years, really five years to do something. And that something has to be recognizable and fit the model of, of what is recognized in order to, uh, well, in order to get tenure or, or in the case of like non-tenure track, you have to keep getting funded. So I do think, you know, as you're implying that the consequences are that that, that um, forces people to be more conventional. But again, I think it's in some ways, I think it's okay to be slightly less wild for six years in order to get the freedom to do whatever you want for the rest of your life. That's a pretty good trade. Mm. Um, the problem is that, that people stop. They, you know, they don't ever branch out. So I, I wish we didn't have that, but I think the academic world and tenure is a, you know, it's a very luxurious concept. And so there's a little bit of a trade-off there. Um, but I think it's possible to make a plan in which you do something innovative and, you, you know, you have to think, I've, the colleagues that I've seen were very strategic about this, right? They would say, I have this research, which is um, not very exciting, but it's sure to generate publications. And then I have something that's medium risk, which is more exciting, but higher risk. And then I have something that's really high risk that may not, like, it's, it's really exciting and I love it, but it may never mm. get published. But at least I'm going to keep working on it so that it establishes me so that eventually I can do it. And then it's a matter of juggling these different yeah. You know, it's it, it's really like expected value. I, I respect that. I didn't do that. I just kind of did what I loved and, and somehow fortunately worked out. I was not very strategic when I was younger. Um, but I see some people who are very smart about planning ahead. Um, I do think it's really hard in the early stages of an academic career because you have so much you have to do, right? You're trying to establish yourself. You're probably at an age when you're also trying to have children. Whether you're a male or female, doesn't matter, whatever. You know, if you're having children, that's a huge 
huge, uh, you know, emotional and cognitive load that you need to dedicate because it's, it's your life and you need to make it fit. And it's really hard to, to do all of these things. Um, but there is a supportive community. I'm, I'm happy to say that now it's so, like, when I look back at my graduate school years, there's so much more now um, to, to help people get through it. Not because it's easier getting through it, but at least you, have, you do not need to feel like this lone imposter and, and by all means, do not drop out. Because my, uh, my overall philosophy with all of this is when you get all of these difficulties, that's when you get more bullheaded because then there must be some good payoff at the other end, because if they're getting in your way that much, mm, there must be some good reason. So I, I think for me, it's been lucky that, that being stubborn is just a part of my nature. Yeah. Um, that's probably my saving grace. But I know people are people have different circumstances and, and different things to deal with. So one of the things I do believe in is, is finding just enough people to talk to to get you through the days and those people are not necessarily formal mentors, right? So there are a lot of there's a lot of talk about people having mentors and role models, but I don't think that's that critical. I think the critical thing is having your support group. They can be peers. They don't have to be amazing, successful old people who are going to take you under their wing. I mean, sure, that would help, but you don't have to have that. Um, some really amazing, successful older people who try to help me they their notion of helping me was you know to tell me things like don't take this leadership position because people won't like you if you do and they were really trying to help me but you know was that helpful fortunately i didn't listen um so so that's the other thing is kind of listening to your gut and being able to say well you know it, it's kind of like lean in but i think of it as push which is that it's never a good time and you're never going to feel like i am so ready to do these things it's always going to be uncomfortable it's always going to be risky but you try it. It's like experiments. You you try it. And if it doesn't work, well, then you do another experiment. But I think you have to try it because if you're waiting for the outside world to, to, you know, for the stars to align and for the world to be there to support you, well, it just never is, is it? Yeah, I can agree more with that. That's really informative. Yeah. So if I ask you what is an area or direction of research specifically for uh, human-robot interaction or, or assistive robotics, was very promising, but maybe you think community seems disagree, recently even disagree, or didn't give much attention to it at the moment. Um, yeah, great question. So human-robot interaction, first of all, is just emerging as a field. It's a hot field, right? Because now we've got um, robots that are really going to be ready to be around people. And by the way, I think soft robotics is a critical, critical part of machines getting into people's lives because we have got to get away from these you know, just terrible embodiments that are that are hard and dangerous, etc. But so we're getting finally we're getting there. But in order to make it possible, we really have to understand people. So there is a social and behavioral and cognitive science aspect, um, and especially social science aspect, to understanding how to put people and machines together. And in engineering, people just call that soft, and they don't they don't like it. They don't want to think about it. And then they bring in psychologists, and psychologists uh, really don't know anything about technology, which is okay. It's an engineering; it's not their fault. But then they impose their standards, which are also not appropriate. Like, well, your study is not valid unless you have a hundred participants. It's like, why don't you try and have a hundred participants with autism and come back to me and tell me how possible that is? And so the problem is again of, of this conservatism, which is 
there are certain standards for psychology and then there are certain standards for engineering. And when you're trying to do a new field that bridges that, like human-robot interaction, and in particular, socially assistive stuff, then people just, engineers look at the social stuff and say, oh, that's soft. And you're like, what's, I'm sorry, what's soft about understanding people? I don't think there's anything harder because if you could understand people, then we wouldn't have wars, would we? Um, and then also from the psychology side, they look at engineering and say, well, that's very nice, but your studies are only N of 10, and that's worthless until you have 100. And they fail to appreciate the challenge of scaling any artificial system, right? Yeah. That's so in the real world, anyway. Yeah. yeah. So so I think what's happening right now is the, the communities are just not talking, and they and they have this need to seem, quote, selective, and so what that means is they're throwing out a lot of interesting work and not publishing it and not developing it because it doesn't fit their mold, which is the point that you brought up earlier. And it's the same one and it rears its ugly head in a new area. And uh, it's just conservatism. Uh, it will pass. The stuff will overcome ultimately. You know, you'll have wonderful work. It's just annoying how long it takes, right? Because it should be faster. But Again, I think sometimes wonderful things happen that push things along. Um, and, you know, it can be anything. It could be a great movie in, in the entertainment industry, like, you know, uh, Big Hero 6 that did amazing things for soft robotics, really, if you think about it. I mean, it's not what made the field. The field was happening for ages. But now suddenly you've got this movie. And wow, bam, people are funding things that, are, that they weren't funding because now they can visualize it, right? So... So sometimes talking to people in the entertainment industry and, and in particular talking to people who work with young people to get them to see a vision of the future that they can create. I think that's incredibly powerful because ultimately it's going to be the young people who are going to shape this future. This is why I always take the time to talk to young people because I see them and they're so stressed about this world, right? Which is so messed up. And I just, keep wanting to tell them but look at the potential you have like look at all the things you can do and really it is up to you and I think they feel a little bit stuck because they sometimes just don't see how to change things and I, I just want to tell them remember the baby steps like there are so many little things you can do that will make a difference yeah. but you know I'm always an optimist so I can feel that you are passionate about what you're doing and that's I think that's most important because sometimes you need to do any kind of research, but I think it's come down to passion, maybe, and you want to do something genuine, but it takes time, of course. Um, yeah, and actually, I will say to that, if you don't mind, you're exactly right. And, you know, I wasn't always passionate about what I did, and I didn't realize this. You know, I, was, I, I worked hard and I, I did well, but it was only about 15 years ago or so when I got into this field that we shaped into something that, you know, is something that, that you know, we really believe in as a community, um, that's, you know, that's when you really feel good. It's, it's, I mean, this is a whole new world for me because now, you know, writing grant proposals is less painful because you really believe in it. Mm. And also, I think you're also better at it as a result because it's just very natural for me. Like people will say, wow, how do you say it so well? I'm like, well, I don't know. I just believe in it. It's not, you know, I don't sit there and craft it for 80 days because it's just, just what I really, really believe in. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that helps. Having that sense of purpose or mission really helps. And I know it's really hard to find. So I always tell young people, you know, when they look at me and they're like, well, how do you know what you want to do? And I have to say, hey, I only figured it out 15 years ago. You know, it's, I, it took me a while. So just, it's okay. Bear with it and you're going to figure it out. But like, don't think you have to know. 
So it's sort of like when you asked me about my first robot, I, you know, I don't even know that robotics was the thing that I truly love. I think yeah. what I truly love is the feeling of helping people. And then I, I came by it through robotics and that's worked out well, but it could have been something else. But now I think that's very important for many uh, students, how to find your purpose. It takes time. It is not easy to find. And I agree with you. That's, that's really inspiring. Yeah. Oh, thank you. You're very kind. Um, yeah. But yes, exactly. It, it does take a while. But that's okay, because even in the meantime, you're doing something useful. As long as you're doing something useful, yeah. it's okay. Yeah, I agree. So if I ask you, do you think there is any direction you thought would work well, very well in Berkeley result that proved something otherwise, just something different in your research? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, well, I think, again, with this new field, I mean, it, it, it's weird. When I think historically, there were various directions that that I was interested in that now are entire mature fields. But I think when we started them, they were too soon, right? So there was some early work on humanoid robotics that just, I think, didn't have the materials and, and kind of the, the, you know, there's a lot of work, as you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of work that happens in stimulation and then waits decades and decades to become real. Um, and uh, I come from a philosophy, you know, a lab philosophy that's anti-simulation. And so it always seemed like a, you know, sort of a, a shortcut, but you never knew how long you would wait for the real thing to happen. Like I got out of uh, distributed robotics and, and robot teams because, you know, we were talking about smart dust and, and things like that, but it was not happening. We didn't have the physical systems. And now, of course, you know, you've got a bunch of drones and, and autonomous, you know, flying vehicles and, you know, all of that. But we didn't have that back then. And to me, that was the reason to get out and do something that you could do sooner. Um, but, you know, I could have stuck it out and then maybe that would have been a, a really valid path, but it's not the one I chose. So it's sometimes it's about timing. Um, and that's also, I think, why it's good to go for need, because if you look around and you are not only inspired by what's interesting from a curiosity perspective, but also something that, that fills a need, then chances are your timing will be sooner. Mm -hmm. um, that's, you know, it's almost like market research, but it's not a market, it's a, it's a problem space. You're finding things that are really problems in the real world versus just problems um, academically. Yeah. Um, I think that helps because I think there were a lot of directions. You know, I did imitation learning, gosh, even as early as my PhD, and now we have learning from demonstration. It's a whole field and it's beautiful and it's using totally different methods than what we were dabbling in back then. Um, it was too early. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I could sit here and be bitter and say, wow, they're not referencing my early work, but who cares? They're doing something that's good. And, you know, hopefully I've moved on and I'm doing something useful. And I think that's, that's the other thing that I think a lot of academics get hung up on. They'd like to say things like, oh, I did this back in blah, blah, blah. Oh, whatever, move on. Do something useful so you don't have to keep thinking about what you did 40 years ago. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, at least I, I hope to do that. Um, and also that's another way to get good students. Yeah. We, are, we as researchers are only as successful as the great students that we get. And it's really, I think, important to stay grounded and, and tell the students about things that are compelling because it's really hard, right? Now, I mean, in, in my field, students are choosing between the really lucrative jobs versus staying in, in um, research and being paid very little, right? And so why would you do that? There has to be a really good mission in terms of why you're doing this for, for your future and the world. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's important. You gotta be able to 
have that mission and communicate that mission, I think. Yeah. I'm curious to ask you because I had the perception that you have a young mind. Also, experience. Yeah, I think this is tricky because sometimes when you get senior, sometimes you still want to maintain what you have done for like 40 years ago, or for example. But I have this perception that you have this young mind. How you can do that? Oh, that's very kind of you. Um, well, it's true that whenever I see myself in the mirror, I think, who is this old person? That's not how I feel. That's not who I feel I am. Um, which is, I guess that's good, right? So maybe if I just don't look at any mirrors, um, then it'll be all good. Um, so that's good. It's good that this isn't uh, visually recorded. Um, but yeah, and then the other thing is maybe, you know, there are different kinds of people, right? There are people who just love to do the one thing and they focus in and I, they just do that. Um, I do like to try different things. And I think, I, re- I mean, I have a huge commitment to the field I'm in, right? I want it to be about things that help people in the near future, but I'm really willing to experiment in that field. And that just, I mean, that's just something that, you know, drives me, right? So I was like, right now, I'm really, really interested in what we can do with technology for anxiety and depression, um, because that's such a huge problem. It's not that I think autism is any less of a problem now. Anyway, they're connected and comorbid. But um, but the point is that, you know, I think these, these challenges come up, and I just find them really compelling. And then when I talk to graduate students, often they'll come in with the personal perspective that relates to something that is current. And that's how you can harness their passion, right? So that's how you stay current also with the students, right? Because if I were recruiting students to do something that I did 30 years ago, I mean, mm-hmm. what kind of students would I get and how excited would they be? So so I think that really helps. Um, but I, yeah, I, and I love to read the I guess it boils down to wanting to be helpful. Like I want us to do something that will be helpful. So we have to look at things that, that need to be done. We can't exist in a vacuum. Um, So that's, you know, that's my thing, but different people have different drivers. And that's why I think it's really important that young people figure out what, even if they don't know what they want, they should know what they don't want. Um, Like I've always known that I wasn't going to spend all my time doing math. And the only thing that bugged me was why is that a bad thing? I still to this day, absolutely refuse to believe that that's a bad thing. Even though in our field, in engineering overall, you should somehow feel bad if you don't love math. And that's wrong. That is just wrong because it leaves out a lot of people who have fabulous ideas and fabulous potential futures. But, you know, they don't want to be shoehorned into some particular way of being educated or thinking. Yeah, that's wonderful. So um, I'm curious to ask you uh, for simulation because you highlighted the point it came from anti-simulation. And, and I think it's really hard when you work with a human. You need something really effective. But it comes to question because there's argument about that. Do you think it is maybe because robots sometimes is expensive? I don't know. You maybe argue maybe more cheaper depend on, on the fabrication on company probably. I don't know. But what's your take about that? Do you think simulation could make sense in human-robot interaction? And if so- oh yeah, uh, okay, you're gonna get me on a on a controversial topic. So I yeah, so I you know I grew up in the in Rod Brooks's lab where we basically believed in no stinking simulations because the thing that really pushed robotics forward was to get out of the simulations and start building real robots. But this was also in an era when processors were weak. And simulations were not detailed, and everybody was using these ridiculous, like ridiculous Bayesian models of noise. I mean, well, I don't know. Have you where or like where where have you seen normal distributions of anything? And so, 
So it was very important at that time to go and build real things and learn things. Of course, now I've seen wonderful simulators that really push the field ahead. And especially in, you know, manipulation, learning systems that are very controllable, there is nothing wrong with that. But you asked the harder question, which is HRI. And I do have to say that, you know, nobody knows how to simulate people. If we did, you know, then we could have maybe predicted how people would behave during the pandemic and we wouldn't have this mess in our hands. So we cannot simulate people either at the individual level or at the societal level. We're just terrible at that. We don't know how because people are so complex. And, you know, sure, you can run simulations, but you don't have good predictive power. And so that's a problem with HRI because you really need data. Now, what becomes interesting from a research perspective, and that's at the heart of the research that we do is how much data do you need and from how many people and what are those people? Because there are certain problems where you need a lot of data from a really di- like very diverse data set, right? Yeah. And that's, a, that's hard. But there are other problems where you actually really need to adapt to the individual user and it may not be even helpful at all to have a lot of data. Autism is an example, you know, because there's such variance within an individual and across individuals that having a larger data set may not be helpful at all. And some of our work has actually demonstrated that. Mm. So I think that's a really important lesson in terms of kind of what, what are you trying to simulate and in what context? For example, I think the major problem with HRI is that people aren't looking in real contexts. They're doing everything in the lab. Well, the lab is a really fake world. So it's a simulation of reality, even if it's a physical robot. But a neat little physical robot in a lab with a person is not necessarily any more realistic than a simulation. So some of the most beautiful work that I've seen is people who actually get some real data and they use it to build models, which they can then refine more in simulation and then go back and get some more to validate. So you have to have that back and forth. Mm. And uh, that's, that's the way to do it, whether it's HRI or some other fields. We had the same challenge, incidentally, with large teams of robots because we didn't have large teams of ro- physical robots. Mm-hmm. And so then it was sort of like, well, okay, you know, I can simulate it, but then am I learning anything real? Um, so again, I think it gets back to how good is your model? Can you bootstrap your simulation with some real models? And um, yeah. and I see in HRI, I, right now we're grappling with this, right? Because because of COVID, we can't go and get data especially in the vulnerable populations that we're most interested in modeling. Um, And then even under the best of circumstances, if you want to do longitudinal studies, right? Like I want to know how a user is going to accept and interact with a home robot for like six months to a year. Well, I mean, that takes forever and I can't deploy 300 of those robots because it's not affordable. So how do you do that? So we talk about how we might simulate that. But again, only if we already had some data Mm. and then... And then it's like, well, okay, I could take two weeks worth of data and can I extrapolate? But what happens at other timescales? What, right? So these are the interesting problems. But I think the interesting problems are at the intersection of uh, real data and simulation. They're not purely in simulation. So I'm curious to you, that's a very interesting point. How do you see the trade-off between the model you develop? It's very challenging when it comes to real world and the data you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think we have to go a step ahead beyond that, for example, black box modeling sometimes if you want to make uh, like machine learning or kind of sort, but how do you see the trade-off between the model you have and the data? And I think lately we have this uh, Starsky uh, company that already filled back in February 2020 because of the data, the the, the data very expensive to collect. And 
So how do you see this trade-off between the model you develop for real world and the data you have? Well, you know, we used to always, uh, again, the school of thought I come from is that the world is its own best model, mm. which is true. So try not to model things that you can sense um, and perceive and collect data about. I mean, yeah, I have a real concern about machine learning these days that there's so many young people who are going into, they're so excited about the tools mm. that they absolutely don't care what they're using them for. And I think that's really dangerous because, you know, you can then spend all your time contemplating the navel and not really thinking about and that, that's how we get into troubles, like, right? Like extreme bias in data, et cetera, because people are not actually thinking about what are they trying to do and why. Exactly. They're just so obsessed with like, if I tweak this and I tweak that. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's very problematic um, because we have these new exciting tools and people have people are not people are driven by the tools instead of the problems right. um that's not good i mean we do need tool people but we don't need only tool people <laughs> that's a problem um and so i and i do think also that there's a really interesting dichotomy between big data and modeling that has some more like because you know there are different ways of modeling and you could do really data-driven modeling which can be very impenetrable to people but could be predictive anyway and then we have other kinds of modeling that are sort of, you know, that they can, they can embed a bit more semantics. And nobody knows how to bring these things together, right? So, so we're still, we're just, you know, there's just so much. To, the way I want to think about it is there's just so much more that we need to understand. Um, and, and we don't need to choose. There's no, like, data versus model. It's going to be all these things. Because to me, the ultimate model is how does the brain work? The brain is still the best computer we have. And the brain does this wonderful mixed solution at all levels, right? So we have, you know, we have models and we have constantly incoming data and our models are constantly being adapted in the light of the data. And then there's certain circumstances where we're forced to, let's say, use the model because you can't take the data and that can be great or it can be very bad. Implicit bias is a great example to link us back to our earlier conversation. Mm -hmm. Implicit bias is a perfect example of using the model um, where what happens is, you know, people have to decide very quickly, right? You know, there are these studies on, uh, you know, if you're given a, a scenario and you have to decide whether you're going to shoot someone or not, um, you're going to use it, you're going to basically decide based on your statistical model, which is heavily biased, and you'll end up shooting, you know, more people of a, of a certain race than you should because you're basing it on a model and you're not looking at the data because you're stressed. But that's a terrible outcome. So that's an example where having a model is very dangerous. On the other hand, we've got a bunch of data, the data are skewed, we act on data instead of looking at, you know, this bigger, more meaningful model in some other context. So, so there can't be an answer. It has to be this constant back and forth, right? And that the brain does a great job of that. So, you know, how can we do a better job in our models and in our pursuit of data instead of, you know, I mean, you see two communities right now. You see people who are just wild about data-driven statistical um, neural networks, and they, they don't even care what they're doing or why. They're just like, oh, this is such great, like, this is great, right? And then you, it's, it's true, right? I mean, whenever I talk to young people who say to me, I want to come to your lab and do deep learning, and I always say, okay, tell me, tell me what it is that you're going to apply deep learning for, and that is in the scope of the kinds of things we do in socially assistive robotics. Who is the population? How are you going to help them? And where are you going to get the data for your deep learning models that, that you want to use? And then, you know, there's a lot of hemming and hawing and, and you know, mm. the good ones realize that these are really hard questions. And no, you don't get to pick your tool first. 
and the bad ones just come around and say, but, but I know I can do it. And, and, you know, then that doesn't, doesn't end up being a good fit for the lab. I think that's a very serious point. And um, yeah, we, we already see what, what you say, what you say already, and that's really a, a huge concern. Uh, and I would like to ask you, do you think it comes down to education? Because I know you're doing a lot for um, level of K-12, for example, just, do you think that's something we have to instill or ingrain in our education for the kids so that the, when they have to, decide how they use the technology or how they design it for and they can account different race ethnicities do you think that's yes education we have to change from early age? yes absolutely absolutely that's a that's a really really good point and i think we need it at every level of education you know we were saying you know 10 15 years ago we, we were saying well we need to put engineering into k-12 education it, it shows up too late but it's not just about engineering. It's really about, you know, inclusion of everyone in the production of everything, including technology and science. Um, and that's that's absolutely right. I think people are starting to face that now because they're seeing AI and data as such a fundamental part of, of you know, the century, really. And the, the fact that we're not doing it well, right? It's very biased. And, and people are just starting. We keep realizing what we're not doing well when we get bad outcomes. <laughs> we're, we're unable to use our priors and models to look ahead and, and avoid some pitfalls. And so I think the, the obvious way, right, we all know to avoid that is if you have inclusion at the level of system design, then people, the members of every community will help that. It's such a cheap and easy way to avoid problems, right? Like if you have a diverse team, then you'll notice at the design stage that you, gee, forgot this group, right? They won't let you forget them. But of course, if you have a biased group, then you end up with the, it's bias and it's also convenience. I, I, one of the things I keep telling people is that when they're teaching classes, for example, machine learning classes, they keep using convenient data sets that they find on the web because that's easy. Mm. But those data sets are flawed and biased and, and not in, they're not important. They're like these, like whatever, convenient data from something. People should really use balanced and interesting data sets, data sets from real world scenarios. Okay, maybe they're de-identified, maybe they're, you know, cleaned up or scrubbed a little bit to make them not not have issues with privacy, but things that are messy and difficult, because then you show students the really hard stuff instead of giving them, oh, here's the data set that like, you know, literally tens of thousands of people have already used and everything has gotten out of it. And isn't it convenient? Look. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a problem because that perpetuates this idea that Oh, that's a model of something that's worth doing. And it's not. We should not do that. We should give them the real data from the start to see the messiness of it and to strive to do it right. Yeah, um, that's really very important. I thank you for doing that. I think that's something it's outreaching as well. And yeah, and I think it comes also to a good mentor and can also guide you sometimes when you like hitting the wall and giving the wrong direction for for example you don't know what you're doing or selecting data that's biased sometimes but what define a good mentor from your experience ah, um i think you just have to care I, I think it really boils down to that because you have to actually care about the person and and you're not doing it because you're a mentor or you feel important or it's a part of your job and you have to do it n percent of the time i think you actually have to care because 
I find that with mentoring, if you just ask people and listen to them, it's as much listening as it is talking. That's hard to believe because I've been talking a lot and it sounds like I can't shut up. But a lot of it is listening. I think people just, I, yeah, I don't have any kind of set advice. I just tell stories and then, you know, I listen to the problem that people, I love to ask questions. I, I love AMA, ask me anything. I love that because then I can just riff and Sometimes people ask the same questions, but sometimes people have these, you know, unique experiences and it's, it just, they just want to be heard. They want to feel that, that they're being heard and seen. Um, and that's the kind of support that we all need. That's why I think um, modeling, role modeling and being a mentor is as much about listening as it is about, you know, spewing wisdom, yeah. you know, I just want to encourage people really, because I think they have it within them. But you have to help them remember that and believe that. Yeah, that's powerful. And if I ask you how we ensure that the robots we develop will be beneficial to humanity as all, and besides from that, what is your aspiration for human-robot interaction? How we imagine will be in like four, five years? How you see the field going in this direction? Well, so I think um, one of the big issues with the field overall. Um, not just HRI, but, but uh, automation in general, is that we're obsessed with automation. We're obsessed with replacing people mm-hmm. instead of augmenting people. So I'm always saying in my talks yeah. that it's uh, augmentation versus automation and that we should focus as much on augmentation. And those are assistive systems, socially assistive systems, uh, prosthetics, orthotics, all these things that help people do more and better. Because you know we have to think about the future of work. It's going to change everything. But people have to have a purpose. They have to be able to do something. And it means it needs to apply to everybody, not just, you know, people who had the privilege of having a great education. And so, so you know, the, the thing that I would love to see in the future of robotics is more balance between automation and augmentation. That's my dream. Now, do I really think that's going to happen in the near future? Well, I don't know. I'm a pragmatist. And as long as until there is a financial incentive, um, or a really desperate societal need. Like right now, we're facing a desperate societal need relating to, you know, the pandemic. Exactly. Uh, so if we we end up facing some desperate societal need related to the future of work, that might change things. I think uh, that's, but the, yeah. that's your right. the profit. Yeah. yeah, the profit motive has to change because if people are only incentivized to develop things that are focused on automation and replacing people, then that's not good. So I think HRI has a tremendous, tremendous role to play. But which way will it go? That remains to be seen. But it has tremendous, there's great hope, right? There's great hope for augmenting human, um, you know, human ability and power through HRI, or there's the potential of like mostly removing it. So which way are we going to go? It's up to us. Yeah, that's also a serious point to be considered. Yeah. Do, do you think ego is important for the researcher? Oh, well, it's certainly very present. <laughs> um, so I think uh, people are very, I always start to tell people not to take things personally, right? So if you involve your ego too much, like if you think, and I always say this to my grad students, like if your paper doesn't get in, mm. your answer is not like, oh, I've been crushed, I'm worthless. Like this is not about you. This is basically how, what, what should you have done to convince these people? That's a challenge. Exactly. Right. So you got to think of it that way, because if you if you make your self-worth wrapped around what other people say, then research can be a very difficult place to be because everything we do is about peer review. 
But actually, you know, I think many of our peers are wonderful, smart people. Um, you just kind of have to understand how to talk to them so that they can understand why you're passionate about the thing that you're passionate about and, and largely can work. I'm not saying all the time and with everyone, for sure not. Um, but I think of it that way. I think of it as like, do not take it personally unless you take it as a personal challenge. Mm. Um, and I think that's a, that's a good way of thinking about it. I, I don't mean though hitting your head against the wall. You can also say, wow, you know, this particular subcommunity is just never going to appreciate it, but I'll find this other one as long as you get to do that thing that you're passionate about. But let's be honest here. I, I, I totally agree with you. It's it's really a challenge to communication. I think it's also talent you develop maybe over the time. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I'm, I'm just to have to highlight this point because sometimes if you are passionate about a certain topic, X, Y, Z, and you have to speak with expert or, uh, or a beer who is expert in the same topic and also have a less ego, it could be fruitful. But sometimes the challenging to convince people outside this X, Y, Z area about your ideas. It's, it's, some people can do it and others cannot do it. And sometimes they are un- misunderstood sometimes and it makes frictions to be honest. And that's something, um, I don't know what advice you can give to have this talent that you can make everyone uh, convinced of what, what you're doing and believe in what you're doing. Well, you can never get everyone. So that's the first thing. Don't give up on that hope. Um, but, um, I, I do think that, you know, it's a lot of it is it's exactly about how you write and speak convincingly. Right. So it's kind of understanding what is a good argument for the given audience. you got to know your audience. I think people forget that. I teach my students this all the time. Like they write some papers and I say, who, who are you writing to? Like, are you remembering your audience? Did you look at what kinds of things this conference publishes? What did the papers look like? Because, again, you don't want to be shoehorned, but you also have to be in, you know, like you have to fit in. So I think knowing your audience, basic, obvious thing, right? They can't be like, there, I see a lot of people who are very naive, like they have a message and they just stand up and trumpet that message, but you can't do that. You have to think about who is my audience and what's the best way to convey what I want to convey. So, you know, I always tweak my talk. My talk is every, every time I give the talk, it's different. It's not hugely different, but there's like a 20, 25% difference because it's being tweaked to that audience for ideally maximum impact. I don't know that it's maximum, but at least it's, I think, you know, that's respectful. It's not a new talk, mind you, but it's also not like, oh, I'm just going to pull this one out and give it again. So I think knowing the audience is important. The other thing is find some advocates within the group, right? Because if you really are a junior researcher and you're doing something new and you're trying to break into a field, you have a lot of things stacked against you. And so now you need to find someone senior who is going to, respect what you're doing and give you a little help in getting your foot in the door. And I'll say for my career, I sometimes didn't realize that there were senior people who actually kind of liked my work and would have been willing to be supportive. I only found this out like 10, 20 years later. And then I'm thinking, Oh my God, I wish I'd known that. So, um, so I think there's this balance in talking to people and, and asking their help but not being overly needy because people do not like needy people. So there's this balance, right? Um, But you can feel them out. You can say, you know, what do you think? And I think always with asking for favors, I'm a huge fan of asking for favors very lightly and giving people a big out. So they never feel bad about saying no, but some of them will say yes. And that's all you need. It's like, could you introduce me to so-and-so? I mean, just small things. And, um, I see a lot of students doing this. I, I have had students who are very astute this way, much better than I am, who say things like, oh, would you introduce me to so-and-so? And sometimes I think, 
wow, who are you to want to be introduced to, to this really famous person? Because, you know, in academia, we're all very hierarchical. But then I also think, you know what? That's gutsy and it's smart. And why not? And I respect my senior colleagues who will take a few minutes. doesn't have to be a long time, 10 minutes to talk to someone young and uh, just very, you know, wide eyed, but also very driven. Exactly. I think that's a great thing. Yeah, I can't agree more with that. And if I ask you, what is the most important quality you have gained in your career and, and the journey? And something you have to maintain, one quality. Well, it's not patience. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I gained that, but I can't. It's against my nature. Um, I would like to think that it's more empathy. So I think empathy is so crucial to who we are and and to to as as a species, really, yeah. right? And and how far we're going to get, and if we're going to destroy ourselves, which we continue to try to do, or if we're going to you know be our best selves. And I think in academia, because it's competitive and it's based on peer this peer review this and that, it's hard to lose sight of empathy, both mm. on both sides. If you're reviewing something, remember this is a person. You could still be based on merit, but there's no need to be a jerk. And it's not about you, it's about them. Similarly, on the receiving end, you kind of have to, if you have a little bit of empathy for your criticizer, right? That's that idea that they're not attacking me personally, or if they are too bad, that's their problem. How could I have convinced them? What would it take? And I think looking at it from an empathetic perspective can, you know, if you could laugh it off, if you could just say, ah, you know, and move on and not make it personal and not make it so very important, uh, you end up with fewer scars. And that takes time to learn. But I, I think I think I'm able to laugh a lot more things off now than I used to and just kind of be like, ah, that person may be acting like a jerk right now, but they probably don't know better. Yeah. And I'm not going to let it, I'm not going to, you know, like think of them as a bad person forever now. Just yeah. move on. I, I agree with you. I think empathy and also conscience as well, because if both of them is a good combination, yeah, we are right. But yeah, yeah, and don't get me wrong. There are people who do terrible things, and I will yeah, very I gladly that. hold a grudge. I will hold a grudge, especially when I see them doing it to someone else. My students yeah. say this, and they make my day when they say it. They say, boy, you're scariest when you're fighting on our behalf. And I love that. Because like you mess with my students, you're going down. <laughs> I like that, right? Isn't that our job? It's our job as advisors. So I like that. Yeah. And finally, what was this advice was given to you as a personally or professionally? And was the life changing for you? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, the one bit of advice that, that um, I think I mentioned earlier, which is this business about being true to yourself. So, you know, when I was going through some, you know, as as a young, uh, not yet tenured faculty member and pregnant and all this, I was getting, somebody was gonna take my lab space away, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And I didn't know whether I should speak up or not because it was a powerful person. And uh, one of my colleagues basically said, you know, be true to yourself. And it seems, it seems really, you could say, oh, that's real, what does that mean? It's just a quote. But it is a really important piece of advice because it basically says in making these hard decisions, like, are you gonna speak out? Are you going to like things that are risky? You ultimately have to think about who are you? Are you going to be sorry if you do it or don't do it later on? Um, and that's been good guidance for me because, for example, you know, I'll tend to speak out and say things. And I know that this means that some people will disagree and some people and probably some opportunities will go away. But that's OK, because that's I don't regret that because that is who I am. If I were 
sweeter and more patient in swallowing all of these things and not saying them, I'd probably have, you know, some other issues because it wouldn't yeah. be true to me. So I'm not saying that, you know, you should be me. I'm saying be you, but figure out who you are so you could be okay with your choices. I think that's a really big issue in life in general is that people are so worried about, you know, did I make the right choice? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, if you go from core principles, it, it gets easier right? Because you're sort of like, this is what I believe in. This is who I am. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, and it makes things a little bit easier. It makes it easier to accept yourself. Yeah. So that was really good advice. I'm grateful to that colleague for, for I, it. I, I, um, I can't agree more. Staying true to yourself and taking hard decision is, is part of courage as well. That's something, yeah, powerful advice. That's true. Absolutely. Although I will say, if you wanted me to give advice for me, my advice is still push, especially yeah. for Gosh, for for women, for underrepresented groups, yeah. for mm -hmm. under-resourced people, just continue to push. Like you have got to just be relentless. There is no giving up. You just keep going. And it's best if you're pushing for someone else, not just for yourself, because mm -hmm. that's where you get the strength to keep pushing. But there's no break. There's just pushing. It's all right. It's worth yeah. it. Yeah, thanks so much for this beautiful uh, discussion and you, you, the work you're doing. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. I really oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, this was such a pleasure. Thank you for wonderful questions. I really appreciate it. This is why I made it so fun. It's the questions you asked. Thank you.